Before we get into Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I want us to just take a moment and pray and ask that the Lord would would awaken the spirit in us and help us to have uh, our eyes on the text in a way that we'll be able to discern what it is trying to share to us this morning. So let's bow our heads just briefly in prayer as we prepare to get into the word together. God, we, gr- we are so grateful, Lord, for your instruction. Uh, Father, we're going to be talking about wisdom this morning. And it is tempting, Lord, to approach you according to man's wisdom and to think that this is simply an intellectual exercise. But it is so much more than that, Lord God. Father, if we're going to see what we need to see, the the Spirit has got to open our eyes. The Spirit has got to draw us near to you through these words. And so I pray, God, that you would give us sound doctrine, that you would help us to worship you in ways that are pleasing to you, Lord God. And that as we tackle this difficult book of Ecclesiastes, that we would walk away not feeling discouraged or overwhelmed or hopeless, but just the contrary, Lord God, that we would see the hopelessness of the vain pursuits of this life as, as a motivation for us to seek all the more the things of eternity, the things that can only be found in you. We are grateful for what we've learned so far, and we pray, Lord, that the things we learned would not be lost, but would be hidden deep in our heart, that we might continue to live according to them as we worship you with obedience throughout our week. And we pray all these things in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. So if you have Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we are reading together today verses 12 uh, through 17. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness, and folly. For what can a man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said... In my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. We are striving along with the narrator, the preacher, who has put his vast resources to the test in an effort to determine for himself if true satisfaction in life can be found apart from the blessings of God. As chapter 2 began, we watched as the preacher explored all the pleasures that this worldly life has to offer. He held nothing back as he exposed himself to the thrills of life under the sun. Remember that phrase means life apart from God, material life, life just general material living. He held nothing back. The questions, however, lingered over him and he found no true resolution in temporary happiness. Though for a minute pleasure can take our cares away, those cares continue to exist and they will eventually weigh heavy on our hearts again. So he continued his journey. He continued to seek. Last week, he adjusted his approach, focusing his efforts on achieving great works and gaining the kinds of possessions that many believe will unlock happiness and offer a sense of security and fulfillment. Remember that as the king of Israel, Solomon lacked no resources. He had abundant wealth. He was able to test these theories to their limits 
because no one had the kind of power and wealth and freedom that he enjoyed. The, that qualifier is repeated here in the opening verse of the passage that we're studying today. He says, For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. So any of us who have wondered whether true happiness can be found in the world, Solomon is going to put that, that theory to the test better than we ever could hope to. He's exhausting the subject in a way that no one after him could even try to do. And so if pleasure fell short, it wasn't because Solomon couldn't afford the best pleasures or because he didn't get the right opportunities. If possessions do not satisfy, which they do not, then surely it was not because he needed more possessions or better possessions. He was in the perfect position to test these worldly approaches, and that's exactly what he did. So, of course, Solomon's frustrations are very deep as all of these accomplishments and all of these possessions get him no closer to the completeness and the resolution that his heart desires. Though Solomon has made it in the eyes of the world, he has all the things that so many people envy and strive after, yet he still finds himself searching for answers and for meaning. Verse 12 tells that the failures of pleasure and possessions turn the preacher's thoughts back to wisdom. Though honestly, wisdom has been on his heart every step of the way. Remember in chapter 2, he read in verse 3, I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. Verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who came before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. <clears throat> so we have evidence here that when the preacher says in verse 12 that he turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, he's really telling the reader that he turned back to consider these things again, that his mind is coming back again and again to wisdom and the role that it plays in our fulfillment. As we have seen in chapter 1, the preacher has already considered the potential of wisdom and folly to satisfy the wandering heart of man. His first attempt resulted in great disappointment as wisdom proved like so many other worldly pursuits to end ultimately in vanity. While it might not be the answer to life's great mysteries. The preacher wants us to know that wisdom is not a worthless thing. There is great practical value in pursuing wisdom and living according to its instructions. <clears throat> While wisdom is not a savior to us, that does not mean we should abandon it and just live foolish lives and do whatever we feel like doing. Verse 13 says, And I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. Wisdom and folly are seen here as two divergent approaches to life. And if you're familiar with Solomon's other writings, you probably remember seeing this idea before. The Old Testament book of Proverbs, also authored and composed by Solomon, is a compilation of wisdom that Solomon assembles for his son, whom he expects one day will succeed him on the throne of Israel. The book of Proverbs is full of practical instruction that urge the reader to act wisely, to constantly seek more wisdom and knowledge and understanding, and to see how much better your life can be by living according to the wisdom of God. Solomon's hope in writing Proverbs was that he could somehow pass on that wisdom that God had especially planted to him to the next generation. Even in the book of Proverbs, we see this, this focus on continuancy and, and, and lasting legacy that we see reverberating here in the book of Ecclesiastes. These inspired words also provide for us, though, a vast resource of practical knowledge by which we can walk carefully through life. 
the Proverbs of wisdom point out what is true. They remind us of things that are clear and, and honest from the Lord God, things that He has revealed to us. The Proverbs of wisdom also point to what is likely. Not everything that you read in the book of Proverbs is a guarantee or a promise. Much of it is telling us that if we walk in ways that are true, then more often than not, we're going to see blessings come from that kind of obedience. From topics as diverse as marriage, to finances, to leadership, to communication, people from all walks of life and from many different philosophical backgrounds have found helpful knowledge in the Old Testament Proverbs. And that is true whether or not they believe in God. Wisdom itself has some practical knowledge here, even for people who don't call God their Lord. It guards from destruction and foolishness. Proverbs 1, verses 3.
And as they work towards their academic goals, they learn about themselves. They learn about their strengths, about their weaknesses, and their limitations. Hopefully the fields that they decided to work in uh, will not be such a mystery to them when they start working because of these educations that they're gathering to themselves. So there are many practical benefits for pursuing wisdom and desiring to gain knowledge. We don't want to discourage that. But of course, our greater hope is that the desire for knowledge in these young people who came up today and we prayed over would go beyond education. That knowing about this world and this life would spark life and is far more lasting and reliable than any wisdom we could gather from a university or from the higher learning institutions that exist in our nation. The preacher illustrates the practical superiority of wisdom to foolishness by comparing it to the reality that light is greater than darkness. In very practical terms, it makes sense to value light over darkness because darkness takes away one of our strongest senses the sense of sight. We've talked about how as temporal beings we only know the world by what we experience with our senses. So when we are in the darkness, it's difficult for us to navigate. We not be, might not be able to understand everything that we perceive with our sight, but it is better to be able to perceive it and not fully understand it than to not perceive it and be completely ignorant of it. Such is the case of wisdom. When I was uh, a teenager, my dad had a 1966 Buick Riviera, beautiful car. And uh, we got it for a song. It was one of those right place, right time deals. And my, my dad trusted me enough that he'd let me cruise in that thing every once in a while. I'd be able to take it out on the weekends when I was hanging out with my friends. And I remember driving to my friend's house one night. We hung out. It was getting pretty late. And the 66 Buick Riviera had a weird, really weird feature. <clears throat> when the lights were off, the headlights would roll back into the car and we would have one continuous grill across the front of the car for a nice smooth look. Some of, some of you remember that, that, that style of car, real sharp looking car. Well, I'm at my friend's house and I go to leave and I turn the lights on and a fuse went out or there was a short somewhere and the headlights won't roll out. The motors would not function. So my lights are on. It's really bright inside of my engine bay, I'm sure, but I see no light on the street. And I remember the, just the... the the, the fear I had, what am I going to do? How am I going to get home in utter darkness with this car who has no headlights? And I probably didn't do the right thing. I probably should have had a friend just drive me home, but I just drove really carefully and tried to stay where I knew there would be, be street lights because when you're in the darkness, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's coming up on you, and other people can't see you either. Darkness is dangerous. So, so too is foolishness. When we live foolish lives where we don't take the time to understand what is good and what is right and what is holy and what is pure, we find ourselves running into to sin and travesty. We find ourselves wrecking our life against the things that are displeasing to God. So the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants us to understand that wisdom, though it is not our savior, though wisdom is not the solution to life's problems, it is not the essence of meaning or fulfillment, it is valuable to us. In a real-world sense, pursuing wisdom and knowledge helps to guard us against the dangers that we might otherwise not see in life. 
That's why in verse 14, the preacher says, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Do you have your eyes in your head, Christian? Do you care about wisdom and truth? If so, are your habits indicative of that love for what is true and wise? Are you studying God's word on a regular basis? Do you pursue him day by day? Or are you trusting in a wisdom that does not come from above? Are you counting on your logic and your reason to steer you through life instead of going to the source of eternal truth that God has provided for you? I encourage you, church, keep your eyes in your head. Don't walk like a fool who is wandering around in darkness, who is his head in straight for peril. It will do you more good to be wise than to act the fool in large part because of the awareness that will accompany you on your journey when you seek wisdom and enlightenment. But when you get to verse 14 here in Ecclesiastes, the preacher runs into a bit of a problem again. Yes, wisdom is better than folly. Yes, wisdom is like light to us. It gives us sight to see. We have a better chance of understanding what's going around us if we are pursuing wisdom. But remember, in undertaking this experiment of Ecclesiastes, the preacher has determined to pursue the answers of life apart from God. He's doing this in a secular way. But in doing so, he has cut himself off from the true source of wisdom. How can the preacher truly benefit from wisdom if he is not acknowledging the source of wisdom? Again, let's turn to Proverbs to see what Solomon has told us in, in, in other uh, scripture that should help us to understand the, the, the nature and the, the, the source of true wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So in another time, in another way, Solomon has written down for his sons to remember that there really is no good wisdom apart from the fear of the Lord. That when we refuse to fear the Lord, even the, the wise things that we think we understand, we don't fully comprehend or grasp. Proverbs 2, 2 through 6, If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand what? The fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. How are you supposed to get wisdom, true wisdom, apart from the Lord? It's as if the preacher of Ecclesiastes has sabotaged himself by choosing to make these, these or to try out these hypotheses and these theories apart from the great knowledge that comes from God above. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So we need light to experience the blessings of real wisdom. And that light must be something brighter than the mere facts found in the database of earth. The beloved disciple John in his gospel account of the life of Jesus records seven distinct I am statements where Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. I am the, the, the gate to the sheepherd. I am uh, the, the bread of life. These statements show us who Christ is and they help us to understand important elements of his work and mission. One of those statements reminds us where true illumination comes from. 
John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This passage from John points at, out that there are two different types of light. There is literal light, light by which we can see the physical world around us, light by which we can gain data from our environment, but there is a more important light, a spiritual light by which we might see transcendent and eternal truth. And friends, there is no spiritual light apart from Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world, and only He can illuminate the darkness that shrouds the heart of men. You're going to run into people in this world who would consider themselves spiritual people. They have sought out different disciplines, their eyes opened. But if their wisdom is not wisdom that comes from Jesus Christ, then their wisdom is like an utter darkness. It is only more confusing to them. It is only obscuring the truth that they sincerely need to know. The preacher doesn't point explicitly to Jesus Christ here in Ecclesiastes. He's not referring to the future Messiah, but he does point out an essential truth that is tied to this fact that Jesus is the light. There's no denying that wisdom has its practical benefits, but all the wisdom in the world cannot solve the greatest challenge that all living things must face. Life here on earth comes to an end. There is a great equalizer that frustrates wisdom and reveals all of its limitations, and that equalizer is death. Where does death come from if not from sin? The idea that is conspicuously absent from the great majority of the book of Ecclesiastes is the concept of sin. The preacher doesn't really speak about it. He talks about his exploits. He talks about his, his adventures and the things that he experiences in life. But he doesn't talk about how many of those things happen to be offensive to the living God. He doesn't talk about how many of those things being sinful are leading to the death of his happiness. Have you noticed that? The preacher seeks satisfaction by worldly means, but he doesn't acknowledge that so many of the things that he is doing by worldly means are a violation of God's law. Neither does he make the vivid connection that other parts of Scripture make that the most urgent and pressing problem that our heart should be striving to solve is the fact that the wages of sin is death. That when we live apart from the wisdom of God, when we walk in foolishness and rebel against Him, no matter how full our life on earth here is, that there's a universal debt that is owed by every sinful man and woman because we fail to honor God who has set us up to this task in the first place. The preacher addresses this unavoidable consequence in verse 14. He says in Ecclesiastes 2.14, And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. And I said in my heart, what happens to the fool happens to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? What is he talking about? He's talking about death. And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. The limitations of human wisdom become glaringly obvious to the preacher's mind again as he contemplates the problems of death. It's worth pointing out here that what the Old Testament believer thought about death did not exactly match up with what we think about death. 
there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a doctrine at play there called progressive revelation. I'm sure you've probably heard that spoken of from the pulpit before. Progressive revelation is this idea that it is pleasing to God in His perfect knowledge of what man needs to give progressively more information about Himself as His plan for us unfolds over time. As we move forward through history, God shows us more and more of what we need to know. The Old Covenant believer, therefore, knew less about God than you can because God had not yet revealed as much about Himself to man. God never gives people misinformation. He does not deceive people. But He is under no obligation to give us all of the information that we want. And He knows just exactly how much we need, how much will be beneficial to His people. So the Old Testament believer had not yet benefited from a clear picture of the afterlife. Even though there were scriptures that point forward to a, an eventual understanding that there are different places that souls go after deaths. Verses such as Isaiah 25, 7-9, which says, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will, he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And we, we hear that resound again in Revelation when it talks about heaven and as a place where there is no tear in any eye, where there is no sadness or weeping or mourning. Verses like that eventually caused the Jewish people near the end of the Old Covenant period to begin to see two separate fates for the souls of men. One, they would often refer to as Hades, a place of death and judgment that was reserved for unfaithful people. And then a better place, a place of heavenly comfort for the faithful, sometimes referred to as Abraham's bosom. Prior to that, the vast majority of the Old Testament period, the lack of revealed truth there caused people to speculate about what happened after life. And the idea of Sheol began to be developed. Sheol means the grave, the undiscernible end to all life, the great mysterious unknown. We're going to talk about Sheol in depth in a later sermon as we work through Ecclesiastes. But just for today, to give you a basic concept of what Sheol is, it's this unknown state of being that the soul goes to after the physical body dies. It's a vague concept by its very nature. But it was anyone's best guess what happened to people after human life. And so, because they didn't have enough information yet, they speculated. In a nutshell, Sheol was a state of existence that lacked most of the fundamental experiences that we associate with life. We see this in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 6. It says, Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. So there's this idea that those features of life that are so important to life no longer exist in Sheol. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. And then later in verse 10, he says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So these Old Testament writers often thought in these terms. Now, they weren't accurate terms. We know that Sheol is, is not the true dwelling place of the soul, that God has reserved for those who trust Him paradise. And for those who do not trust in Jesus Christ the Son, judgment. But this is how the old covenant believers saw it. And so Solomon is perplexed by the fact that all of his efforts to gain wisdom and knowledge, though they offered practical advantages in the moment, 
falls short of answering the most pressing and urgent question that haunts man's mind. How do we overcome death? All that knowledge is powerless to stop death from eventually taking its toll on every man and woman. Apart from God, what else can death be but a final expression of our utter lack of sovereignty over ourselves? All of your uh, chances to live wisely and spare yourself from life's discomforts will eventually come to a screeching halt when your earthly body is spent and you pass on from this world to a fate that you have no real power over. Death is one final humbling proof that we are not the ones who are in control. The wise has got to contend with death just as surely as the fool. His wisdom is no power to save him from it. And if death really is an end, as the great majority of people in the days of Solomon believed it to be, then wisdom can't be the answer because wisdom can't answer life's greatest question. Wisdom can't give man a way to live forever and overcome the grave. When we consider the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole, I think that the argument can be made that in general, Ecclesiastes is about our mortality. If one of the most nagging questions about life is, why are we here? What is the meaning of life? And then, what happens when this life is done? Then how do we answer that question with any real satisfactory if the sum total of our life doesn't somehow extend beyond the handful of years that we personally spend here on earth? If we have no meaningful connection to the past or to what comes up after us, then where are we supposed to find lasting significance and meaning in life? Ironically, man in his quest for freedom and fulfillment struggles to writhe out of the grip of God. But it is the grip of God which keeps man alive and even provides the energy for his struggle. To forsake the Lord God is to die. Our attempts to divorce ourselves from God's lordship over us are as futile as Satan's attempts to overthrow the kingdom of heaven. We owe everything to him. Of course we will struggle for meaning and significance if we marginalize God and try to live as if we can get by without him when we cannot. I was thinking about this as I was preparing the sermon this week. Even if we did not owe a debt of sin to God, even if we had not broken God's command, we would still owe a debt to him, wouldn't we? We would still owe him the debt of life. When you you read in Revelation, you see these fantastic creatures, these wonderful beings, the cherubim and the seraphim, these angels flying in the throne room of God. They're not sinful creatures. They're not fallen beings. Yet what do they give to the Lord? They give him worship and honor and praise because they have come to know that their very existence is a gift from the Lord God. And so they owe that God their everything. The thought of our own mortality stops us in our tracks and forces us to consider everything from outside of our own perspective. When you die, everything will keep on going. How special can you be if it will all keep happening without you? Life will carry on as if you were not even here. Is it any wonder that the preacher, frustrated by his limited human wisdom, his inability to secure undying contentment, is it any wonder that he throws his hands up in the air and makes this big picture expression in verse 17, the last verse that we're looking at today. He says, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Commentator 
Derek Kidner says, if one fate comes to all, and that fate is extinction, it robs every man of his dignity and every project of its point. Think about that. If, if man is just living for the time we have on earth, then what is the point of anything? If, if our time is only because uh, or only filled by the moments that we spend drawing breath here on this life, and then after that we're extinguished, we're done with, it's over, then how can anyone hope to find any sense of, of continual meaning, any sense of real belonging in the universe? The experiment that the preacher is conducting is a dangerous one, because any attempt to live apart from the giver of life is destined to end in this kind of depression and hopelessness, this emptiness that, that is ultimately to be found if we try to divorce ourselves from the purpose and meaning of God. The dark cloud of despair is beginning to cast its shadow into the preacher's soul. What is done under the sun is grievous to him. All is vanity. So why should he continue to press on in such a meaningless endeavor? Thankfully, he does not give up. There's much more to be learned from the preacher of Ecclesiastes. And I'm, I'm grateful that you and I can learn from Solomon's journey, but we're able to do it from a safe distance and, and a more, more historically complete perspective. Turn with me for a minute to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you will. As we digest the words of the preacher, we have one eye on the events that he has experienced. We have one eye on his evaluations. But as the New Testament church, living under the new covenant of Christ, we are also able to have an eye on Solomon and at the same time an eye on the cross. The work of Jesus Christ shows us the lengths that God has gone through to save his people from a meaningless and despairing existence. Because Jesus Christ loves sinners like us, because he was willing to come to earth and fulfill the law in his perfect obedience to Jesus Christ, and because having lived that perfect life, he was willing to suffer and die on our behalf, we don't have to have the same kind of despair and hopelessness that the preacher of Ecclesiastes is, is contending with here. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58, expresses some of the joy that we can have in light of the, the true meaning of life. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the imperishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, your labor is not vanity. See, the promises of the New Testament that we have in Christ Jesus is that this depressed view of the world that the preacher is, is grinding through does not have to be our fate. 
Because we've been given a picture of something beyond the sun. We've been given a picture of life according to a God who has helped us to leave what is perishable and become what is imperishable. And that only happens through the death of these physical bodies. So we don't have to look at death as this terrifying thing. Death doesn't carry the stigma for a believer that it does to someone who doesn't know Jesus. In fact, the hope that we have in Jesus can cause us to become dissatisfied with life on earth for an entirely different reason. There was a French uh, writer named Voltaire. I don't know if you've heard of him before. Very prolific writer, wrote plays and essays and 20,000 letters. Literally, the man was a prolific writer and he was extremely, extremely critical of most of the institutions of life. His favorite target probably was Christianity. The man did not believe the Bible was true, and he believed that Christianity was a crutch that was damaging to the freedom of man. And yet here we see Voltaire at the end of his life saying, and I quote, these are his words, I hate life, and yet I am afraid to die. Voltaire, this man who is so critical of, of Jesus Christ and his church, he doesn't have an alternative that is better. He has come to hate his life because he refuses to accept Christ's meaning and he can't find a real meaning apart from Christ. And so though he hates his life, he fears to depart from it. He's in this catch-22 because he's got this intense disgust for the ugliness of humanity, but his deep-rooted disapproval of religion and Christianity in particular meant that he had no real hope for a better reality after this one. If he was wrong and the Bible was true then Voltaire looked forward to judgment. If he was right and the Bible was a fable, then Voltaire looked forward to nothingness. Both are depressingly bleak. But see the difference in the mindset of one who is also frustrated by the constant struggle of this life, yet is kept afloat by a personal faith in Jesus Christ. These are the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So here is a man who has been able to turn his gaze away from the temporary earth that we live in to see that there is a greater reality, that there is a higher meaning. And it can't be found here on earth. It must be found in the hand of God, reaching out to the heart of a hardened sinner and turning them to faith in Jesus Christ. Because he has put his faith in the God of redemption, Paul knows that his true home is not earth anymore. And while he continues to dwell, him, dwell here on earth and will happily serve him who saved him, he does look forward to that day when this struggle and this strife is complete and he can be with his Father. One day of all of life's frustrations will be overcome through the cross. Until then, we who are counted among God's children can rejoice in the wisdom that God has given to us so that we might live in a way that is pleasing to Him and look forward to the greater reality that is our promise in Jesus our Lord.